in Tolkien's Return of the King, Frodo's captured, uh, Sam goes to uh, rescue him, and they're talking about the orcs, and they, they have this conversation, these or the orcs are these demonic looking beasts. Fro Frodo says uh, to Sam, the shadow that bred them can only mock, it cannot make, not real new things of its own. This is a really penetrating insight from Tolkien, really drawing on the tradition of, of Christianity, drawing on Augustine, Aquinas, uh, on the nature of evil, the nature of uh, what Satan does, that the devil and his minions um, and his earthly manifestations are corruptions of what God has made, that the good is prior to the evil, that the evil is unoriginal. The devil is not a rival God to God, creating new things of his own. He's a creature who can only infect and turn what has already been made into some kind of mockery, into some kind of perversion. He is incapable of making new real things of his own. And this is similar to what we're seeing here in this passage. Satan is mimicking God in a kind of parody. Uh, what do I mean by this? If we... If we go back to um, the, the Tolkien references, uh, there's this part where um, uh, Treebeard, and this is debated in, in Lord of the Rings lore, but Treebeard says that the orcs are created in imitation of what? What are they perversions of? Does anyone know? Nope. The elves? Yeah, the elves. The orcs are perversions of elves. And... Uh, he says that trolls are perversions of Ents. And, um, and so what's happening here, and I know some, some discerning person out there is going to be like, he's getting his hermeneutic from Lord of the Rings. No, I'm just using it as something to compare to. What Satan is doing here is he's doing a perversion of the Trinity. There's the, an unholy Trinity going on here with the three beasts, with the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. Let me explain further. In Revelation 12, Satan is the dragon trying to destroy Jesus. The dragon has seven heads, ten horns. Then we see the beast come out of the sea. Seven heads, ten horns. It's an image of the dragon. And this we determined was Roman or emperors, specifically Nero. Then we see another beast coming out of the land. And this is an image of the sea beast. Not exactly an image, but it is in his likeness. So we have three different kinds of beast, dragon, sea beast, land beast. In our passage, this third beast comes out of the earth or out of the land. The Greek word there can be either land or earth. I mention this every time we talk about Revelation. And this is part of the confusion of Revelation. When we read the word earth, we think of the globe. We think of the cosmos. But really, the word earth in there has specific reference to the land, the land of Israel. This beast is coming out of the land. The, the scriptures are emphatic about what the land is, and that carries on into the New Testament. And we see this in Revelation. And that's what this beast is coming out of. He's coming out of the land. Um, so the Roman uh, Empire images the dragon, and the Israelites uh, image the Roman Empire. These are images of each other, or we could say offsprings of each other almost. So this is the unholy trinity that I'm talking about. Satan 
or the dragon is kind of an, he's an evil father. Rome is the evil son and the wicked king. And then we have Israel is the evil spirit and the wicked church. Jesus says uh, that the Pharisees are of their father, the devil. Uh, in John 8. And then twice in John's apocalypse, Jesus says that the Jews are um, a, a synagogue of Satan, right? There's a straight comparison to what the Jews are doing in Satan worship. Uh, what we, so what we see here is that the dragon who is the devil, he's manifesting as the beast and then manifesting as uh, Israel, uh, manifesting as Rome, manifesting as Israel. And this is in contrast to what the true version is. The true version is uh, our, our heavenly father, the son, the son of the father, and then the spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit. The son is the image of the father. Paul says in uh, Colossians, uh, the son is the image of the invisible God. And then Jesus himself, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And the church is the image of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. To the Corinthians, Paul says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So the, the Trinitarian version of this, God, Father, uh, the, uh, uh, God, the Father, the Son and the spirit who creates his, his church. And these are images of each other. So just as we are sons of the son, who is the son of the father, just as we are images of the image of the father, so too the unbelieving Jews at this time were sons of the son of the father dragon. It's, this is just a photo negative of these images uh, that we see here. Uh, the, the, um, the Jews at the time, they, who were they worshiping? They were worshiping, worshiping their king of Rome, while Christians were worshiping their king of heaven. Uh, they worshiped their father, the devil, while Christians worshiped Yahweh father. These are kingdoms and churches in conflict with each other, and they're, they're photo negatives of each other. Okay, uh, and then we have the land beast. Um, I'm going to move quickly over this. The land beast is, um, he's described as the false, the false prophet in Revelation 16 and 19. We read this, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And so I think that that land beast is being associated with the false prophet. Dragon, beast, false prophet. And Jesus, in his Olivet Discourse, the Olivet Discourse is a condensed version of Revelation. Uh, what Jesus says is many false prophets will, ar will rise up and deceive many. And in our passage, this beast, what is, he, what is he described as? He's described as a lamb with two horns. It speaks like what? A dragon. Right? He's, it's, there's even a messianic figure there. He's a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. Uh, Jesus uh, warns, again, in the Olivet Discourse, uh, and the, yeah, this lamb that speaks like a dragon is like a false Christ. Jesus says, for many will come in my name. Caleb, Caleb read... Uh, uh, a, a, a parallel version of this today. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. 
Then if anyone, anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Okay? So in our passage, what does the beast do? He performs great signs and wonders in the presence of the first beast. And that's what Jesus says false prophets in Christ will do. They'll be able to perform wonders and miracles. In Matthew 7, Jesus describes people who can cast out demons and perform many, many miracles. And he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In that very same passage, in that very same uh, passage, Jesus says, um, he describes uh, false prophets as looking like sheep, but are inwardly ravenous wolves, which is what the land beast looks like. It looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. Um, and in the book of Acts, we see this again. The, the spiritual realities that John is seeing are also uh, closely related to Acts. Uh, the Jews are constantly persecuting and lying about the Christians in Acts. And what is a, how does a dragon speak? How does Satan speak? He's the father of lies. He speaks deceptively. And this is what the Jews were doing all throughout Acts. I, we don't have time to develop this, but one example specifically in Acts 20, um, Paul is in Ephesus and he says that he suffered tears and trials because of the plotting of the Jews. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul says that when he was at Ephesus, he fought with beasts. This is Paul literally calling Jews beasts. I suppose we could, uh, perhaps he had some kind of gladiatorial sparring in a Colosseum. Um, but I think what is going on here, if we look at the whole uh, 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 imagery that Scripture is giving us here, and really one of the primary concerns of the New Testament is the unbelieving Jews and the Judaizing. And this is really kind of main enemy number one in a lot of ways. In Revelation 19, we see the beast and the false prophet paired together once again. Um, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. All right, so we already talked about this. The false prophet works signs in the presence of the beast in the land. The land beast does the same thing in our passage. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. So I'm just making that connection stronger there between the false prophet and the land beast. So I think the Jewish leaders um, and perhaps some of these false messiahs and prophets that we read from Josephus uh, are being symbolically conveyed here out of what's coming out of the land. What's coming out of the land is this land beast. They're, they're, they're involved in this state worship, and the state worship is worshiping Satan. And uh, we see probably the most clear example of this is during Jesus' crucifixion. John 19, but they cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him, the people saying this of, of Jesus. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Right? Their king is Caesar, not the king that is supposed that is the true king. They're crucifying him. So this is what I mean by an unholy trinity going on here. Dragon, sea beast, land beast. And it says that uh, he causes those in the land to worship the first beast and to receive the mark of the beast. 
again, a lot of popular culture with what the mark of the beast is. You know, every few years, it's it is so whatever new thing is happening is the mark of the beast. Right now, it's it's the vaccine or or even masks, uh, which I'm not a fan of. I think we should resist, but. Um, that's not what John has in mind here, or at least not primarily. Um, uh, and, or, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's uh, computer chips that we have placed in us or whatever, which actually as technology progresses, I think is actually kind of a pretty, um, it's, it's a pretty barbaric way of doing it. If they're going to do something like that, it'll probably just, just be a, a, a bio scan type thing with our eyes or our, our fingerprints, which, um, it's like, ah, oh, I got the mark of the beast already on me. <laughs> like, but anyway, uh, I'm, I'm kind of poking fun a little bit because I think what uh, the mark of the beast is, I will just say right up, um, I believe what it is conveying, it's a spiritual signification of false worship. That's it. That's all it is. Um, and that can manifest in all kinds of ways. But this is, um, and, and the way it manifested in the first century was allegiance to Caesar, uh, Jewish uh, 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 worship of uh, Rome, which is ultimately worship of Satan by Rome and Israel. So worship of the devil through the church, giving ultimate loyalty to the state, which we are in a similar situation right now. So I'm not saying that there, there's not analogs that can apply to what, I mean, we live in a time where most of the church is slavishly obedient to the satanically psychopathic, sodomite, you know, LGBT racist government, right? Uh, uh, murdering murdering government that's the the church is fine with that mostly there there's a remnant that's that's not but uh so but anyway this is what i think the the uh the mark of the beast is um let me uh let's see here in our passage john tells us that the beast causes all who dwell in the land to worship the first beast and and to receive the mark okay um Again, this is a satanic parody. And in the true version of this, we see throughout Scripture that God marks his people. There's, the, there's true worshipers who are marked on their foreheads or on their hands. And we see this throughout Scripture. We see it right in Revelation. Um, Revelation 3. He who overcomes, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. I will write on him my new name. So I guess it doesn't specify where there, but in Revelation 17, there's these angels of destruction. This is actually, it's like a recapitulation of Ezekiel 9, which we'll read, but there's these angels of destruction, and then there's an angel with the seal of God, and the angel with the seal of God says to these angels of destruction, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Revelation 7, 3. And those that were sealed are the 144,000, which is a significant number. It's, it's 12 multiplied uh, uh, a lot. Uh, so this is the church. These are the saints. In Revelation 14, uh, John sees the Lamb of God with the 144,000 who have the name of the Lamb's Father written on their forehead. Okay? So right there in Revelation, we see uh, the name of God written on the saint's forehead. 
And then, like I said, we see a similar instance in Ezekiel 9. As, uh, uh, Ezekiel hears a loud voice from heaven. He gathers to himself six men, which is interesting. Six men who have authority over Jerusalem. Um, each of them has a battle axe. That's how the, the New King James translates it. And one has an ink horn. Um, and the one with the ink horn is told, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads. I did a cross there. <laughs> I'm not saying that it was a cross, but uh, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So those who are weeping over the sins of Jerusalem, he, he tells this man, go and mark them. Okay. And then the others to the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So we have here, if, if this is anticipating what happened in the first century, those who were marked by God are actually spared the destruction of Jerusalem. So this could very well be the elect who heard what Jesus had said and were taken out of these uh, moments of, of trial and tribulation. Of course, uh, Christians suffered their own trials and tribulation uh, at the same time. But it's likely the 144,000 are uh, perhaps a remnant who escaped the destruction of Jerusalem. But the point is, there's this mark going on here. In Exodus 28, we see that the high priest, uh, he has the name of God written on his turban. There's a gold plate, and, it, and God says, write holy to the Lord on it, or holiness to the Lord on it. God's name is written on the forehead of uh, the priest. Uh, so it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel hollow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Uh, Jesus, who is our high priest, is the only pure uh, sacrifice and sacrificer. He's the one who has holy to the Lord on his forehead, but he, but we are baptized into his name and he places that on our forehead as well. So we have God's name uh, on us as well, placed on us through the faith uh, of obedience. Uh, in Deuteronomy 6, this is uh, probably one of the more uh, clearest uh, comparisons to, I think, uh, what John is drawing on here. Uh, this is right after the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, and these words uh, which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And this is uh, something uh, Jews took literally uh, by the time of the first century, at least. And we still see this today. They have and Jesus makes fun of them for broadening their phylacteries. Um, uh, and that what the phylacteries are is these little boxes that have uh, the law written on scrolls. They put it on a box and they tie it to their hand. And sometimes they'll tie it to their forehead and they go up to the wailing wall and they do this. And that's that is a literal 
uh, implementation of what, uh, what God says to do, bind it to your hand and to your forehead. But what, what God means by this is that we implement God's law into our minds and we have our minds transformed into the mind of God and then the work of our hands are obedient to his law. And it's, it's really a way of signifying the whole man, his, his head and his hands. Um, and so that's what's, uh, uh, that is what is going on here with um, uh, uh, the seal of God or this marking out of the hand and the forehead. And, and what this is, is, is it's showing um, complete devotion to God. And the opposite of that is complete devotion to Satan. That's what the mark of the beast is. These are, these are signifiers of worship and who your God is. So you have the mark of God on your forehead and your hand, or you have the mark of the beast on your forehead and your hand. So that's, John is seeing spiritual realities that correspond uh, to earthly manifestations, and it has to do with worship and who you're, who you're dedicated to. Okay, um, one more thing. I want to touch on uh, 666 uh, in Scripture, in Israel's history. Uh, we didn't get to this last time, and um, this, I think, is another aspect that, that helps us kind of understand the two beasts. We talked about 666 as it related to the sea beast. This is, this is more what I think um, uh, as it relates to the land beast, to Israel. We don't have time to develop these fully, and I think some of these first ones are kind of fractally related. It's not very obvious, but um, we do have man and beast created on the sixth day. And God made the beasts of the earth, and he created man to have dominion over the beasts. But what actually, what happens? Um, uh, a beast exercises dominion over man. Um, Adam submits to a beast. And so I think six, where both beast and man are created, um, and, and this, is, this, this could be uh, not, not exactly... Um, I mean, Satan is manifesting as, I'm not saying that the, the angels and the cherubim were created on the sixth day, but he manifests as a snake, um, as a beast. So I think that the six is, is uh, a signification of man, but specifically fallen man, where new man would be signified by eight, where Jesus raises on the eighth day. Um, and so um, I think that that's what the six is significant of man submitting to beast, which is what Israel and Rome are doing. They're submitting to the archetypical beast, just like Adam did. Furthermore, it's three of them. So it's kind of this expansive fall. It's this trying to reproduce yourself kind of type thing. Later in scripture, we see Goliath. He's this giant and he's measured at six cubits and a span. A span is from, it'd be from the tip of my pinky to the bottom of my thumb. So he's six cubits in a grasping hand. Um, you could develop that and, and think of that what you will, but- uh, What's a cubit? Uh, I don't know. Um, but, the, but the measurement being six there, I think is, is the important part. Um, so it's six, yeah, six cubits in a grasping hand. And then his, uh, his, um, his spearhead weighs 600 shekels. And his armor uh, that's, that he's wearing is described as what? Anybody know? What does it look like? Dragon scales. Yeah, looks like scales. 
It's the word there specifically is scales of a fish. So he's a sea beast, which he's a foreign power. I think he's kind of anticipating this sea beast kind of uh, aspect. That's what Goliath literally looks like. Later we see King Nebuchadnezzar. He erects an image of himself that is 60 cubits high and six cubits across. So again, image worship of a foreign power. And so uh, I think these are kind of fractals uh, suggesting something with the 666. But the most important and obvious one is comes at the height of Solomon's reign. Um, in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9, the height of Solomon's reign, we read this. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. And immediately after this, um, it's, I, it's, it's in one of the passages, it's more clear than the other. Um, but immediately after this, Solomon multiplies gold and silver. He multiplies horses and he multiplies wives. All things that the law of God specifically prohibit to the king. Deuteronomy 17. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Um, and actually prior to this, it says you don't set up a foreign king over you, which is what Israel is doing with Rome. Um, one from among your brethren, you shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you. Oh, okay. There it is. Who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So in, 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 in 2 Chronicles 9 or, or 1 Kings 10, I can't remember, Solomon, it, it clearly shows right after he receives the 666 talents of gold, the, the writer immediately goes into Solomon breaking these, systematically just going through. And so he's... he's 666 is kind of that pivot to Israel's apostasy. It's Israel on the decline. It's Israel at odds with the law of God. And that's what I think is, is first century Israel is doing writ large. Um, so I think that that's what God is communicating to us. The Israelites, they apostatize. They've become a synagogue of Satan and they worship their satanic Caesar king. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar, a manifestation of the dragon and the devil. They should have worshipped the true king, who is Jesus, but instead they worshipped the satanic king, Caesar, who was the son of the devil. So what does all this mean for us? Well, I think it shows us that, uh, it, it gives us a warning of what the people of God can become. Um, I don't think we are in as bad of a situation <laughs> I don't think we actually fully appreciate how bad the situation was in the first century, but we are in a bad situation. We are in a situation where the church is a kind of land beast right now. The church is set itself up against the word of God. If you talk about obedience, people, people lose their mind. Even among conservative circles, if you don't talk about obedience the right way, they lose their mind. As, like, as, as a certain pastor from Brooklyn was, is fond of saying, like, as if, as if we have a problem of people trying to work their way to heaven right now. Like, it's 
It's not the problem of, our, this isn't the late middle ages. This is not the problem we have. Um, and so, so the, 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 the church, it, we're in a similar situation, but God does preserve a remnant. God does preserve a remnant. God does destroy the beast. God destroys the false church. He destroys the, the sea beast. And that's another, that's another thing to take note of is that the land beast and the sea beast are allied here in Revelation, but they actually start warring with each other. Uh, in reality, the, the, the Israelites start turning on Rome, right? That's what we talked about with the Jewish war. And that is what the demonic does. It eats, it eats each other. We've, we, all of you who have <laughs> seen the world, that's what people do. They devour each other. Because they're, they're, they, 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 have eat, they have unclean spirits in them. And that's what, that's what this unholy kingdom and church does. It devours each other. And then Jesus comes along and he slays them. He kills them all. So Jesus conquers. And this is, this is something that, that we can take hope in. That we uh, are, are, are the true beast, the Lamb of God, overcomes both of these. He keeps us. And we can do that by keeping the law of God. And when we do that, when we keep the law of God, we bind the law of God on our, on our hand and our forehead. We have the mark of God on us, not the mark of the beast. And so God pre preserves us. God will preserve us. Um, and and, and he, he'll, he'll preserve us either, either into the resurrection if we're martyred or he'll preserve us uh, you know, physically if, if certain kinds of uh, persecutions come. So that's what we do. We continue, to, uh, we continue to worship God. We continue to obey his law. We bow our knee to nobody except King Jesus. Amen. And whether we live or die, we do so as worshipers of the King, of Jesus who is risen and enthroned uh, in heaven. So let's pray. The charge is this. Persevere to the end. Uh, as said before, Revelation is an expanded form of the Olivet Discourse. And in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says this, Because of the multiplication of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And when Jesus is speaking to the churches in Revelation, he says in various ways to be faithful to death, to overcome, to keep his works until the end. And when you do, he gives you the crown of life. Our world is similarly chaotic to the first century. The beasts are raging. The false prophets are prophesying. The sheep with two horns is speaking like a dragon a lot right now. But this is the time and the place and the battle that God has given you. He's placed you here in this time providentially on purpose. The Lord has given us uh, this battle to fight. And so he tells us to persevere to the end. So you saints of God, persevere in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace